0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money downloading is quick and easy just find stitcher in the app store download it it's free and it takes just a few seconds then during registration hit the promo code box it should say tell us how you heard about stitcher where it says that you enter other people and when you do that you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks it's that simple the latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too always available on demand with no syncing that's the stitcher app go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the app store it's available for your iphone your android or your tablet computer and don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register this is an app you can apply it go and get it oh my god
0: you are not alone you have found other people
2: you and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
2: stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And
0: now here's your host, Brad Liston. Just one person at just one time. Right? <laughs> right.
1: Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is Dialogue Driven. This is Experienced Internally. Thank you for being here. I hope you had a nice Christmas. If you are into that sort of thing, it's good to be here inside of your head. And that is where I am right now. I'm inside of your head. What do you think of that? Uh, What is happening? Well, I appear to be in kind of a holding pattern. Uh, I feel like I need to do some edits and some rewrites on my novel, which I've talked about. But I feel like I need some time away from it before I can begin that process with a clear head and a full head of steam. I feel like I need some perspective. So I'm, I'm letting the manuscript cool off. I'm trying to stay busy uh, in the interim, writing-wise. And I've been trying to do that throughout the holidays. I'm trying to keep working on something. And I find that I'm just sort of empty, like empty-headed and uh, empty of whatever creative spark possessed me throughout the writing of the novel manuscript. So, uh, you know, and and, the, and to be honest with you, the thought of writing another novel or starting one, uh, the thought of that right now makes me feel uh, sick. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if that's a healthy psychological response, but that's the truth. So to shift gears, I've been thinking uh, that maybe I, w- I would try writing a children's book Like something for my daughter. Something uh, funny and whimsical and enjoyable for the whole family. Which is a a phrase that cannot be used to describe anything I've ever written, ever. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I I figured I'd give it a shot. Maybe a collection of uh, subversive kid poetry. Something along those lines. So uh, today, uh, you know, just before I came on the air, I was working on a poem... And I should say that even this, even the writing of kid poems is a grind, for me anyway. It's not easy to get it right. So I've been working on this poem uh, that is tentatively called Chain Reaction, and here's what I've got so far. Do you want to hear it? Uh, Here you go. A little girl named Billy was feeling kind of silly, so she called her buddy Willie and said, "'Willie, I feel silly.' Willie, he was feeling sort of goofy and freewheeling, so he took his mashed potatoes and he threw them at the ceiling. Willie's sister, Getty, who was eating some spaghetti, picked up her spaghetti and she threw it like confetti. Then Getty's friend, Jolene, started making quite a scene flinging Franks and Beans at the television screen. So that's all I've got uh, for now. That's it. (laughs) And uh, I appear to be writing about a food fight. I'm not sure what this is, you know, I think it's just about chaos, just about children throwing food, which might not be the greatest message to send, Uh, or or perhaps, uh, to be a little bit more generous, perhaps it's about the power of one, like if you throw food, uh, who's to say that it might not create a ripple effect that could be felt all over the planet,
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Huh? My guest today is uh, Robert Kloss. His new novel, The Alligators of Abraham, is now available from the good people at Mud Luscious Press. It is great to have Robert here on the show, so I figure uh, let's get that happening. Is that a phrase? Get that happening? This right here is my conversation with Robert Kloss, the author of The Alligators of Abraham.
2: Well, I'm in my living room right now Um, on the couch. Uh, My cat had just hopped up on me, and now uh, I've kicked her off, and I'm in Salem, Massachusetts.
1: In Salem, Massachusetts? Yes. Like Salem Witch Trials, Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what kind of uh, what kind of tourism? Like, what kind of stuff do you have around you that marks, you know, that particular moment in American history? Is there are there sites that you can visit and stuff like that, or w- what do they have?
2: Uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's um, some of it is historical and some of it is not so historical. Uh, there's a lot of um, well old houses. Uh, that you can tour uh, that have some small connection to the witch trial. There's the, the witch house, they call it. And it has kind of this incidental uh, connection to the trial. One of the, It was owned by one of the judges. There's no real strong connection to the witches. Uh, and there are trolley tours of historical Salem, which basically just drive around town. And then there is a witch trial uh, memorial, which is basically a uh, 20 stone markers with the names of the the dead uh, carved into them, and that's right next to a, a cemetery, a very old cemetery. And then there's a lot of like the usual kind of touristy stuff, like wax museums and uh, dioramas and things like that.
1: So, how much of the like how much of the history do you know just by virtue of living there? Like, are you are you pretty well versed, or is it something that you only have kind of like a surface level understanding of?
2: I guess. I'm- Fairly well versed, I guess, just going through, uh, you know, the museums and whatever a few times. But I was definitely aware of of the witch trials and the history of the witch trials before we moved out here.
1: So, like, okay, uh, cause I, I was reading about this the other day, uh, just randomly, and mm-hmm. like, what what was it about these women that made people think they were witches? Uh,
2: well, the there were some young girls essentially that said these people were witches they they based it on uh their uh, actual sightings they, they said that they, the women came to them in dreams and the, the they could see the devil speaking to them whispering to them uh and and things like that but they had no like actual proof they just believed uh, eyewitness testimony of these young girls
1: people are crazy <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they're definitely a little more gullible back then than they are now. Well, uh, Officials were a little more gullible, I think. I think um, back then they they were just more disposed to uh, just believing what people said. They they based everything on spectral evidence, uh, what they called spectral evidence. But after the the trials ended, um, they started to base their trials more around actual facts,
1: concrete yeah. proof. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a positive development. So, it definitely was. so you have like a, you have kind of a lean towards history. Like, you know, your latest book has a lean into history. Like, is that something that you find yourself immersed in often? And like, do you feel like, uh, that's a central part of the fiction that you write?
2: You know, it wasn't always, uh, but around the time I started writing that particular novel, I think I was making more of a conscious effort toward it. Um, uh, I used to have a difficult time finding my way into a story, and I think I started using history. It's just kind of a, of a way to, well, I guess, as an inspiration, kind of like consciously picking and choosing things to, to inspire my imagination.
1: Well, and I think like also like, and I've t- I've talked about this before on this show, like history, you know, history lends uh, a writer uh, architectural or narrative architecture. You know, you can look to yep. history and you can find the full story. You know, and then it's just a matter of doing the research and and you know, obviously, you've got a lot of uh, heavy lifting to do after that fact. But at least the architecture of the narrative is there.
2: That's a, that's true. I, I I think I'm kind of tending away from basing my stuff up a history now because that gets a little too uh, seductive, like a little too easy for me, and it's all and it becomes a little more difficult to make. Like imaginative leaps, I start to base everything off of research and get a little conscious of um, being too removed from actual events and i'm I'm not a I'm not a historian or a, a you know a nonfiction writer I, I barely know about like actual life so um, <laughs> so I find that a little too dangerous, but yeah definitely
1: uh, and so uh, are you originally from Massachusetts?
2: No, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I'm was, from Oakland, Wisconsin.
1: Where in Wisconsin?
2: Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I lived there my first 12 years, and then I lived in a little town called Chili, Wisconsin. It's like, uh, it's unincorporated. I think it's about 100 people.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, because I, I was born in Milwaukee. I heard it in your voice. I was like, you sound like you're from either Wisconsin or somewhere in the Midwest.
2: Yeah, it's apparent in my voice, isn't
1: it? Yeah, well, so, okay, 100 people in the town that you were raised in, or at least spent part of your childhood in?
2: Yeah, through um, middle school and high school. It was about maybe 100 people. That might be generous. Uh, it was definitely a lot of farms, a lot of fields, uh, a lot of cows and horses. Um, yeah.
1: What? Okay, so we, are you from a farm family?
2: No, um, we just kind of lived uh, <laughs> in, a, in a normal house. Surrounded by a very big lawn, but then around surrounding that, everyone was farmers. So we didn't we didn't really fit in.
1: Okay, so what did your parents do in a town that small? If they weren't farming,
2: well my my parents uh, my parents worked uh, in in a city about thirty miles away. It was, the rent was just cheaper, uh, you know, in this in this little village. So. So that's where we happen to live.
1: Oh, ah, okay. Okay. So do you, um, what, yeah. your your parent your parents like worked in Eau Claire proper or something or
2: well this is actually uh, after we moved from Eau Claire, but it was this town uh the city was Marshfield and my mom worked at at a Target uh in Marshfield and my father worked at the clinic, Marshfield Clinic.
1: So he was a doctor, is that right?
2: No, he uh more menial labor, yeah. Okay. I don't know exactly what he did, but...
1: You know, it's funny that you say that because I've had several people on this show and, like, I don't, you know, it's just always interesting to me where writers come from and whether or not they have some sort of family history of creative um, achievement or, you know, that kind of leaning in their genetic line, but... (laughs) You're not the first person who, when I've asked about, like, you know, what did your parents do, that, that has told me I have, no, I have no real idea what my own father did. And like, it sounds a little crazy, but at the same time, when I think about, like, what my dad, uh, you know, did or did back when he was working on a day-to-day basis, I really don't know either. There's a lot of mystery there, unless you're somehow immersed in it with him.
2: Yeah, and my father was the kind of man who didn't necessarily like to talk about uh, anything that went on at any point in his life. Uh, so when he got home, he kind of left it all behind him.
1: Yeah. Well, but that's good too, though. You don't want, I mean, sometimes it's, I think parents can bring home, you know, bring work home with them and that's not always positive, you know? So I think it's good to have, it's healthy to have some separation.
2: That's true. That's true.
1: Um, so what were you like as a kid? I mean, was this something that you always thought you were going to do or is this something that you came to, you know, when you were later in your life?
2: No, writing is definitely something that, um, Always came natural to me. Uh, even before I could write, I would have my my mother kind of um, fill in the dialogue balloons for like comic books I would try to draw. So I was always I was always drawn to imagination and and um, you know like the creative act or whatever. And I remember for the first seven or eight years of my life, my dream was to uh, like write and draw Marvel comic books. That was like my big dream, and then uh, I kind of gave that up, and then I wanted to be a novelist from there on out.
1: And so when did you make that switch?
2: I was probably nine years old, I
1: guess. Oh, um, wow. wow. <laughs> you, yeah. you decided at nine that it was time to leave the comic book dream behind and move into serious fiction?
2: Yeah, my mom uh, gave me a really rough critique on some of my drawings after I, I told her I wanted to grow up to... To write and draw comic books and she basically said that I didn't you know that that you need to be very talented to do that kind of thing and I probably didn't have that kind of talent and uh, so that I thought well okay I mean I can always just write okay. and then so, I never asked for her
1: So yeah I was going to say did that did that bum you out when she said it sounds like she was fairly blunt
2: Yeah it, it definitely did um, especially since she made the point of uh, kind of lavishing praise on my friend uh, as a better writer. So it definitely made me, uh, it definitely hurt my feelings, but um, with, that I was able to or willing to give up, I think, said something um, to me too that I definitely knew that uh, there was a separation between what I saw in my mind and what I was going to be capable of drawing.
1: Well, that's the thing about it is that like, you know, it gets tricky because when it comes to anything, but like, you know, obviously writing is the context that we're dealing with here, um, you know, the, the issue of talent and how much of a role does it play and what, you know, where, 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 like, what is the dividing line and, um, you know, how much of it is, is due to hard work and persistence and a willingness to suffer, uh, you know, all of the different challenges that one has to go through when they're, you know, on their way to publication and, and eventual success and all the rest, you know, like, I don't know. It, it, it's very difficult to parse. And I think that, you know, do you, do you ever look back and think to yourself, well, my mom, even though it upset me at the time, gave me good advice.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, probably, I probably would have wasted a little more time on, on drawing, but I mean, uh, definitely, uh, over the years, family members and teachers, and. uh, other writers have, have kind of, you know, kindly suggested that maybe writing isn't the best thing to focus too much of your time on. You know, it doesn't necessarily lead itself to, you know, a, kind of a stable lifestyle and I've never really listened to them either. Um, so I, I don't know if, if I was just willing to be more persistent with, with this other thing, or if I had more talent with writing. So the, so the criticism wasn't quite as sharp.
1: I'm well, but sure. Well, but the thing though is that when it comes to like when you're talking about illustrating a comic book, it seems like that kind of uh, gift is is sort of God given. You know, you can. I mean, I, I know you can probably will yourself to improve as a, as an illustrator, but uh, you know, I grew up with people that could really draw, and it was just mm-hmm. it was just there. You know what I'm saying? And much the same way that uh, I think a person's natural inclination. Um, toward writing is there but it seems like writing for some reason uh, you know can be uh, you know you can achieve a level of proficiency or mastery at it through sheer will and hard work in ways that you might not be able to do other things like play an instrument or draw or something I mean or or maybe I'm wrong you know that's what I think that's what it that's what I'm getting at when I talk about how difficult it can be to parse like you know what what if you have to just have it in the way that people who have, like, the musical thing have it. You know what I'm saying? Like,
2: No, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Um, And I used to think of writing in that same way, too. Um, You know, that that maybe there wasn't, uh, that I just didn't have enough talent to ever be a writer, you know, that uh, it was just hard to imagine that I did. And it wasn't until later that I realized how much, Kind of hard work goes into being a writer, um, but I had friends who were like violinists or whatever, and they knew from you know the age of ten that their dreams were kind of fruitless.
1: What? Well, well, how that, so? Just that there's no there was no way for them to ever make a living doing it.
2: Yeah, that that from the age of ten, they you know they were judged that they're you know that they were going to have enough talent to go a certain distance but they would never become, you know, a great musician or a, a professional musician.
1: Yeah, it's so, yeah, it's so strange. And like, it. you know, you, you, you think of it in those terms. And then uh, there are also stories where you have somebody who, you know, didn't necessarily show at a very young age, uh, but who, you know, uh, all of a sudden, after like 10 long years of work, suddenly bloomed. I mean, that happens a lot in writing, I feel like. And maybe there is sort of the in you know, initial or innate talent that is there and you know, people have the bug, but it takes development. I, I just don't know. And it just I guess the reason I keep driving at this is because I, I wonder about it with regard to my own work. Like, you know, am I mm-hmm. good am I good enough to even be trying to do this because, you know, I do want to make a living at it. And I think most people who sit down to write books have that same wish. I mean, there's so much time and effort that goes into it. I don't think most of the people I've spoken with on the show I think Feel that way? Like, do you feel that way, or is it something that you're just doing for the love of it?
2: Uh, well, I mean, definitely the love of it is is an important part of it, but I think I definitely have bigger ambitions.
1: Um, and what are those? I, like, you know, like what do you, what do you see for yourself, or what do you hope for yourself?
2: Well, I, I guess I guess ultimately, I at this point, I I want to be. I guess, I guess I want to write the book that I kind of envision in my mind. Uh, you know, like a, like a great book. So I, I don't necessarily see myself as ever necessarily being, uh, like commercially successful enough to to make a living at it or being willing to do the kind of work that maybe I would have to be in order to, to make a living at it. But I definitely Want to to be like a like a great writer, you know, which is maybe a more difficult thing to achieve. Uh, but it seems like it's also like you never know if you've arrived at being a great writer. And maybe that's that's what makes it easier to to kind of want to achieve that. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of writers in history that haven't you know haven't even. Um, or at least in their lifetimes didn't get the recognition at all they had no idea like f scott fitzgerald or herman melville like these are guys who died feeling like they had failed
2: <laughs> yeah exactly
1: it's, it's like a great tragedy that they never got to see what became of their work and how much acclaim it, it you know it wound up ultimately getting and so on and so forth but um, that could happen and i think if you you know have your priorities set uh, in the way that you just described like i guess there's always that chance because despite being really good, uh, that doesn't, you know, a a book very well might not find an audience and very well might not, um, get a warm reception from corporate publishing. But, you know, I think that the, the landscape is changing so dramatically that, you know, I, I, I go back and forth in my head about this all the time. Like when I look at the writers who are succeeding today, I wonder to myself, like, are they doing something like, are they able to, to scale, um, you know, the corporate ladder, you know, for lack of a better term, in ways that, you know, other people might not be. Um, are they networking themselves in ways that, you know, might not be apparent on the surface, but, you know, behind the scenes they're doing a very savvy job of positioning themselves and getting to know the right people and so on and so forth? Or is it simply just a matter of writing a really good book and shit just happening? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like uh It's interesting. Yeah, and a little bit of luck too, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of luck. Often, I mean, you know, I, I, I I always bristle when people say there's no such thing as luck. I really, really hate that. And I, you know, I know that it's like, you know, what is it? Where luck is when hard work meets opportunity, or whatever. Like, I think there's some truth to that, but like, there's also some truth to just being dumb lucky and being born in the right place, or being in the right place at the right time, or having the right person happen to find your book and like your book and write about your book or whatever the case may be. But, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's maddening because you, you, you're you trying to figure out if there's anything that you can do to actually affect the process in a positive way or in a significant way. I think you can affect the process in a positive way, but, you know, we're, we're talking little tiny micro steps, you know, and like you can make a thousand of them and they're not going to do much for your book sales, at least not in the short term. And it's not going to make it any easier to sell uh, or to pay your rent or to write the next book. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just interested, I guess, in knowing, um, if you're fatalistic about that or if you are optimistic.
2: (laughs) Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I, I I guess, I must be slightly fatalistic about it. Um, but also I'm, you know, I, I, I try to do my best not to get too hung up on that side of things. Like when you talk about like Melville, when you mentioned Melville, I was just, I'm reading um, Pierre or the ambiguities now. And that was a book that, um, that basically kind of ruined his career. It finished his career because he was so hung up on trying to write a book that would succeed. He wanted to write a book that would fit the market and it, Devastated him so much that that he also, um, I guess he kind of sensed that he'd never be able to do that, and that kind of attempting to make his career happen or make his career work, um, you know, pretty much ended his career. Uh, so I definitely try not to, you know, I guess I just I try to keep my hands off the wheel as much as possible and and more leave it up to fate. But I definitely know people who who think that that's being too lazy. And I know people who have, um, you know, kind of um, achieved success in life just by being very, very aggressive about things. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure, you know, exactly what the answer is when it comes to making people like this thing that... Um, you know, it's so personal to you,
1: hopefully. Yeah, I'm sticking with, I mean, I'm sticking with, I think it, I'll go back to my old, like this is where I always finish these kinds of conversations is I always finish them with, a, it comes down to word of mouth. Like somehow you've got to get the book into print. Somehow a few people have to read it and somehow it's got to emotionally move them so much that they tell their friends about it in an urgent way. Like that, And mm-hmm. that's and that's it. And no amount of print advertising and no amount of, You know, radio uh, advertising or interview appearances is is probably going to be able to move the needle in in a grand fashion. Though, you know, I say that, and it's like if you get onto television somehow, obviously that'll help. I think television can Mm -hmm. move the needle. I think certain like you know national radio shows or whatever can probably move the needle a little bit. But I think as far as like sustained. Book sales and the longevity of a book are concerned. It ultimately just comes down to readers having some sort of really strong emotional response, positive. Emotional yeah, yeah.
2: You know, I mean, what makes a book like, um, like Fifty Shades of Grey happen? See, you that's, know, what is that?
1: That keeps me up at night. I don't know, man. You know, like, but but okay. But here's the thing: because I have a friend who read that book, and uh, I've talked about this before. She she read it and she said it was hot. And she's a literary, you know, she has a literary bent. You know, this is not somebody who reads uh, genre fiction or fan fiction or any of that stuff. so she's not the, um, you know, she's not the obvious audience for the book, but she read it out of a sense of curiosity. And, you know, she obviously didn't think that it was, uh, you know, the greatest thing ever put in print, but she understood its appeal. And so maybe mm-hmm. it goes back to what I just said about, uh, you know, delivering an emotional response. Like, as crude as it might sound, the women and, and I guess the men who are reading it are getting off on it somehow. Then that's really all that it comes down to.
2: <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of things that people can get off on that don't outsell the Bible, you know. Right, right,
1: right. So yeah, I mean it's it's a great it's a great question, and I would be interested, and I would love to see this happen for all books uh, and all art, for that matter. But like you know, specifically books in this particular conversation, I would love to see a website that somehow tracks the. Um, the lifetime of a book in terms of its media exposure and its sales numbers. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. like what was the publication day for Fifty Shades of Grey? And then what happened to expedite sales? Like what, ha- like what media covered the book? Or was it all just driven by people on Amazon buying it and telling their friends? You know what I'm saying? Like is there a correlation? Was there some huge review? Or breakout story in the New York Times that kind of took it to the next level, you know, which I, I guess right, sometimes, right. sometimes happens. But, like, you know, it's hard to track that stuff because especially with a book of, of – uh, with that kind of sales magnitude, there's so much coverage. So it can be difficult to kind of harness it all and get a sense of how it happened and when. But, you know, maybe there's a story there. Like maybe you could actually pick that apart and figure out why it happened. But Or maybe it would just be a deeper mystery. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and there's no sense in trying to replicate it, right? No. The next one is going to be some totally different kind of thing. You know, it's going to be about who knows, aliens or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, Alien sex. Have you have you ever uh, have you ever sat down and made that mistake of saying I'm going to write for the market? Like, do you ever think that?
2: I definitely wrote a uh, when I got out of grad school. I, I wrote a novel that. Um, based on a story I'd written, a friend of mine, um, said, said he thought if I wrote a novel based on the story, that it would be, um, you know, potentially like a, like a big book. And so I wrote that novel twice, maybe three times I wrote that novel. And it, you know, it just never, never moved me as I was writing it. And I could tell it was just a, just a total failure, um, but it was a very kind of commercial book that I tried to write. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to to do the little things that you you know that you have to do to make something like that and you know readable
1: well and that's it's cool. and it's miserable when you're writing something that you don't or you aren't really moved by or at least it is for yeah. me you know what I'm saying like that's a, and even when I'm working on a project that I'm actually into when it's not working or you know every once in a while a book will go off in a direction that ultimately has to be cut and you know like that slog when you're in the midst of it is painful you know it's just like ugh like you have to wake up in the morning and go look at it and you're like you know i'm i'm not feeling it you know do you know what i'm talking about like where you lose the thread yeah yeah so how that's,
2: do you- that's like that's that's the hardest thing with like a novel because you are kind of invested in you know you have at least probably a year your life invested in this thing and you're never going to wake up every morning just totally jazz to work on the same thing right So there are you know like these built-in lulls where you're not interested in it and it's it's tough to tell if you're slogging through something that that is going to be interesting uh the next day or if or if the thing just kind of died when you know when you weren't tending it too well
1: well, that's the thing too, and I, you know, I think that along those same lines, there's a, there's, a, I, I, I tend to believe that there's something about the down cycles and the up cycles of working on a project of that length that mm-hmm. have to do with, uh, like the the subconscious mind needing to do its work. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes when you go through a slump with the book, when you're working on a project for a year or two. You know, sometimes your mind just needs a, a moment to like, kind of relax itself a bit, or at least move away from the book. Uh, however, it happens so that it can kind of process things. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it just sort of has to happen in its own time. I guess is what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's one of the the things that helps with when you're writing something that's based on research or where you have notes where you can fall back on. Where, at least during the lulls, you have material that you can kind of return to that that was maybe conceived in a in a moment of like high passion um, so that it's not you're not just writing you know on these walls where you you know hate the project
1: yeah so how do you you, go ahead
2: oh i was gonna say but i definitely uh had periods where you know I, i feel like in that time i thought it was the worst writing that i've ever done (laughs) <laughs> but that seems to be also kind of the the most stable, right? And there's just something about flogging um, through and forcing yourself to do something that, that can be fruitful too.
1: Well, and so how are you doing it? Like, how are you working? Were you an, are you an everyday writer or like what kind of schedule were you sticking to?
2: Uh, I try to be an everyday writer. I try to do, I try to do something a little bit every day. Um, I, I, You know, I have a long commute, uh, so I'm on the I'm on the train, and on the subway for, you know, like three hours a day. What? What do do you
1: do? What do you do?
2: uh, I teach. I teach in Boston, so that ends up being around three hours a day, where I'm hopefully able to do a little bit of writing. Sure. Yeah. When I'm not grading.
1: Well, yeah, but that's like actually, you know, in transit is a good time, especially. I don't know if the the, the trains in in Massachusetts have Wi Fi yet. Is that happening yet?
2: Yeah, they do. Um, but I I write things out in the longhand first.
1: Oh, you do. I was going to say because it's you know part of the reason why it's so nice to be on an airplane, or at least it was until Wi Fi invaded, was the fact that you you were sort of locked in your seat and you could read a book or write something, and there there were no interruptions other than like the flight attendant coming by with the drink cart, but. Um, it's got to be a nice... In a, in a way, it's got to be a nice place to work, to be on a train.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of people need to separate themselves from the Internet. I know a lot of writers who, who have that issue.
1: I think, yeah, I think the overwhelming majority do. I mean, I can't... I, you know, I can count on, like, one hand, I think, the the writers I know who are really not into the Internet, or at least... Internet, you know what I'm saying? Like... It, Every, everybody I know, and in fact, when I was doing a little prep for this interview, I noticed that you don't really have a website, or did I miss it? I thought like you're, you had like a blog at some point, but it got taken down.
2: Yeah, I took that down because it was ugly. Um, but I, yeah, I got I have a le- website, but I, you know, I, I don't really tend it. I don't really know what to do with it. I'm very lazy about it, but uh, it's there
1: somewhere. What is it? What's the website? Because I was Googling and I was trying to find it. And...
2: Yeah, um, it's robert clothcom
1: Oh, okay. Well, for whatever reason, it wasn't coming up. But, you know, how do you manage that? Like, do you... Uh, you? To me, you seem like somebody who's not really... Uh, I feel like you might be the, the exception to the rule here. Like, a, you, you, I feel like your temperament lends itself well to staying away from the Internet. And the fact that you're writing longhand is sort of a clue that you're not... You know, like on your iPad, eight hours a day or whatever.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I used to, I used to uh, type everything out, and I used to find myself distracted uh, a lot. But so, so I kind of built that uh, the the note taking. Uh, I write notes out longhand first, uh, and I, I fill them in. Uh, longhand and then I transcribe everything. So I, I try to, um, build in little tricks that just keep me away from distractions like the internet and things like that. But, um, I think some distractions are good. Some distractions, um, you know, kind of give you like a little bits of a little mental energy or, you know, um, kind of rejuvenate you from time to time.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing about it is that I'll find myself sometimes like staring at the page or staring at the screen and, um, I'll be you know I don't know stuck or just out of juice, and then I'll click over to the internet for a few minutes and I'll read something and or I'll, or I'll open a book, you know whatever it is, but like those little interludes do sometimes rejuvenate me, and like that needs to be said as well it's not all you know it's not all one way,
2: yeah, and I definitely keep myself surrounded by
1: books too um, so so I was going to say like when you when you um are working on a book, obviously you're doing research. And uh, you know, I, I would assume that at least part of this research is happening via the internet but mm-hmm. do you are you a writer who uses like books as models? Do you know what i'm saying like I, I feel like a lot of writers will have like one or two or three books when they're working on a project that serve as sort of uh you know like a North star you know for the book because of the way that they're structured or the contents or the tone or whatever. Do you do that
2: I definitely try um. Uh, with with the alligators of Abraham, I, uh, you know, I tried to kind of consciously make it into like uh, one of those books I really like. So I, I reread Blood Meridian like three times, and I had Blood Meridian sitting out, uh, you know, wherever I went, and, and I reread Moby Dick, and I, you know, I always had that out, and uh, you know. Uh, um, you know, just books like that. I had I had the Old Testament out, and I, you know, I tried to be very conscious. I tried to kind of craft it into something like that, but I don't necessarily know that I um, did a good job of it of, of following the guidelines. Like I think, I think those books mostly just uh, got me energized to write something, but I I didn't. Um, you know, I didn't say, well, I have to, I have to structure it like McCarthy structured his book, or anything like that. It was more of just giving me the the enthusiasm to work on something and uh, making me more competitive, maybe. You know, trying to trying to achieve something remotely like what they did. Right. Um,
1: yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, whether you're reading a book that you really admire, or you're reading an interview with an author that you really admire. Um, or you're listening, you know, or whatever it is, but like those, those experiences do juice you a little bit and give you the kind Mm -hmm. of energy that you need. And I think like, you know, because it's such a long slog, particularly with a long form, uh, project, you know, you have to find ways to continually recharge your batteries. You know, Uh, it's not Mm -hmm. like, I mean, unless you're somebody who's just supremely hyper motivated internally and, you know, I, I suppose that could happen, but you know, for most of us, we have to find ways to kind of, um, I don't know, give ourselves the, uh, the, the boost that we need.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess I'm not too comfortable with the idea. Now that I'm thinking about it too comfortable with the idea of a model, you know, of like using a book as like scaffolding or, or modeling something. Um, there's just something, you know, the more I'm thinking about it, the more it makes me kind of uncomfortable. Uh,
1: why is that like it's,
2: you know, I'm not sure. I think maybe it has something to do with it. It feels too too easy or inorganic. You know, I don't like to, uh, you know, I don't like to enter a book with anything really uh, too determined or too figured out. Um, I like things to kind of just emerge and, and, maybe, and maybe thinking of something as like an actual model uh, feels a little too predetermined
1: and aware yeah no i mean i think that's what that was what was going through my mind earlier when you were talking about how you had these like blood meridian and moby Mm -hmm. dick and whatever kind of as uh you know on your desk as references but that the book that you ultimately wrote took off in a new direction entirely like that to me seems correct you know because Mm -hmm. as much as you can try to emulate you know whatever it is about these books like ultimately for a book to really succeed at the level that you would want it to succeed at, it has to do it on its own terms. You're never going to be able to actually replicate, you know, exactly anyway, the kinds of structures and, you know, use of language, etc. Like it has to be its own beast.
2: Yeah. And I'm probably just not talented enough to like do a very convincing knockoff uh, of, of any of those books. Right. So it's, you know, in order to survive, you have to kind of do your own thing while you're, while
1: you're working on it. Yeah, well and I think like some book. I think some writers are better at um, diagnosing and deconstructing books. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I think some writers can look at a book and read it and, you know, at the end of the process sit down and go, okay, well this is how it worked and this is how the plot fit together, etc and um for others and I think I would count myself among them, it takes a little bit more time to actually be able to pick it apart that way, you know? I don't know. it, it seems yeah. that's a kind of talent in its own right.
2: Yeah, and I try not to think too much while I'm reading, if that makes sense. Because I don't want to, I don't really want to see how things work, and I don't really want to figure them out. And I think that that makes things maybe a little more difficult for me. But I like things to stay a little, a little mysterious at least.
1: Yeah, well, no, it's a, it's interesting that you say that because um, you know, for a book to be really good, it's got to be immersive. And yet when you've mm-hmm. done enough writing, you obviously have some deconstructive stuff happening because you know how the sausage gets made. You know what I'm saying? And you, under- yeah. you understand at least something about the um, you know, the structure of a book or how plot works and so on and so forth. So it's not, I don't think it's possible to entirely turn off that deconstructive tendency. But yet um, if a book is really good, which is what we all hope for, um, <laughs> it, it, should, it should probably make you forget that, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so, and I think um, part of my my process is just trying to like make everything about feel. So, if some you know, i just to trust my instinct that I've read enough books and I've talked about uh, you know enough books and enough you know literature uh, you know enough literary classes or whatever that um, at this point I've kind of honed my sense of what works and what does not work and what feels off and. You
1: know what I mean? Well, and that brings up another interesting question, which I think is part and parcel to, you know, the writing ritual or how you get your, you know, how you get your writing done on a day-to-day basis. And, And that is like reading, you know, do you find that you have to be regimented about reading in order to get the reading done that you feel is needed in order to write well, or is reading something that you love so much that you just do it automatically and, you're a person who like is reading a novel while you're in line at the bank. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: I, I think i at this point in my life, I, I, um, I read less than I ever have before, uh, because of, um, and, and I, ha- and I have to force myself, uh, more and more to find the time to read. Uh, and I think part of that is just because, uh, I, I'm more willing to find time to write and and, and cheat at, at my obligations and, and whatever to find time to write. But reading it is, is kind of the thing that I have to force myself to feel obligated to do. Uh, and part of it is that I don't necessarily like to read as much as I used to. Um, there, there was a time, uh, like in college, when I would read any kind of book. And, and now I have like this very kind of narrow, narrow does sense of what is interesting to me. Uh, so a lot of times when I'm working on a book, uh, the only reading I do is the books that may get picked out uh, to inspire me or the books that I have out for my research or the book that I'm writing.
1: Well, and there's only, but there's only so much energy that can go around. And then I also think that if you're, if you're, if you're really immersed in writing a book, uh, it can become a distraction to be reading too many different books in the midst of writing one. You know what I'm saying? Like you get all these different voices in your head. And I think I sort of understand the idea of trying to maintain a kind of purity or consistency, mm-hmm. consistency in order to kind of keep yourself working in the same voice and keep yourself working in the same tone in a sustained manner over a long period of time. Like. That makes sense to me. I mean, is is that how it's happening for you, you think?
2: I think so. I think, you know, I definitely, at this point, I, I know what it is I want to write. And and I think the reason why I know what I want to write is because it's what I want to read. So I tend to seek out the kind of books that, um, that I feel would be interesting for me to, to write or that feel kind of stylistically similar to the sort of thing I would want to write. And the kinds of books that I don't necessarily want to read uh, are the ones that I know that I wouldn't want to write, um, which might be limiting. You know, I, I could be kind of you know, like painting myself into a corner um, that I'm not taking in enough new ideas, um, but it hasn't been a
1: problem so far. So how do you get your ideas for books? Like if you have such a clear sense of what it is that you want to write and the books that you want to write are the books that you want to read, like what, what, how do they originate? Is there a consistency to it?
2: Um I guess so um uh, uh, it's consistent in that it's um uh, you know it's not really predetermined i i I've, I've, I've kind of learned that eventually like the idea will will find me. it'll hit me, and just to be open uh with with um the alligators, um I just kind of had the sense that these stories that I've been writing that that I thought were good at the time hadn't gone as far as they could have gone. And I just kind of one night as I was falling asleep, uh, you know, I, I had this kind of overarching kind of, um, uh, plot occur to me. Um, and I kind of had like this sense of a scope. Uh, but then the rest of the book came when I was trying to, um, you know, research some small details. And I was just inspired by uh, little bits of research, um, uh, so I think just about everything I write now, um, stories or, or these longer books, come about partly just by things that occur to me, um, along with like uh, research that seems to seems to be interesting in some way or seems like uh, uh, it could lead somewhere. Um, I don't I don't find myself having any false starts anymore. It's been years since I, I started something that that, um, didn't
1: lead somewhere. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, let's talk a bit more about, uh, your development as a writer and how you ca- you know, came into, uh, actually working at this. Uh, you, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, briefly about your childhood and your comic book, uh, you know, obsession and then the, the drift right. into writing, but like, what about like college years and stuff like that? Like, where did you, where did you go to school?
2: I went to school at, uh, University of Wisconsin, River Falls, uh, for my last two years and my first two years, I went to University of Wisconsin, Marshfield, uh, which, and, and my emphasis at both schools was, um, English and, and creative writing. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't, I just went there, um, kind of because I, I had the sense that, um, any place was going to be fine for what I wanted to do and just that any place that I went would kind of give me time to write um, and not have to like enter the real world.
1: So you had that strong of a sense of, of your direction when you were 18 years old?
2: Yeah. Um, actually I, I took, uh, I wasn't going to go to college. Uh, I took a year, I, I took a year off that I, that I didn't realize was a year off. I thought it was, uh, you know like the rest of my life um, and I, I moved in with my grandparents my grandparents lived kind of in the, the woods of northern Wisconsin um, by a, a town called Siren, in Wisconsin uh, and they had a trailer um, on their on their property and I I, uh, I lived in this trailer with my uh, my computer and I tried to write, uh, like you know, the Great American Novel or whatever.
1: At age 18. I
2: thought it was time. Yeah, and it was it was a huge disaster, of course. <laughs> um, but you know, and and that was a, it was a good thing too because I hadn't done any uh, really any real reading. I had no real background in literature or anything like that. I had uh, just kind of recently discovered James Joyce, and so I was inspired to write. Uh, you know, like my version of. A portrait or an artist and uh, and after a few months I, I realized that that wasn't gonna happen and um, you know it, it definitely humbled me and and that's why I went to college I, I figured I wanted to be around people who, who had like you know lists of books for me to, to uh, steal from
1: and so did you have good did you have any like really like important teachers when you were in, in school that who really had an impact
2: Uh, I I think all the teachers in in both uh, English departments uh, were helpful. There wasn't anyone who was kind of like really influential or really important. They were just, uh, you know, they all have their particular uh, focuses, and and, um, so I kind of used them. You know, there would be the person who was really interested in British literature, like older British literature. So they would give me uh, those were some people were more interested in like contemporary literature, feminist literature, uh, you know, there was the guy who really liked Hemingway and, and so I kind of used all of them
1: kind of equally. And like, what were you like socially in college? Like, it sounds like you were like unusually focused for somebody that age, or at least had like a s- yeah. very strong sense of direction. Like, were you having like a traditional college social life or were you, were you pretty hardworking and focused through those years?
2: It was, uh, you know, I um, I thought the college experience was uh, was where you um, went to the library and got a bunch of books, and then went back to your room and read the books, and then worked on your writing for a while, and then then you did your homework uh, before class. You know, I didn't really have like a like a sense of college lifestyle. I thought it was supposed to be like very. Uh, you know, very focused around kind of engaging with ideas and, and,
1: um, I think that's actually what it's supposed to be.
0: <laughs> just...
1: yeah,
2: it, it is probably what it's supposed to be, but <laughs> obviously that's not what it is. Uh, you know, I, right. I, I teach, teach at uh, two colleges now. So I know that, that, you know, I was totally wrong, but.
1: Do you ever look back? Yeah, I didn't go ever, to parties. Do you ever look back and just be like, what the fuck was I thinking? I should have been like.
2: No, I'm actually proud of myself. Yeah, um, I feel that I, I, feel, that I feel had bad that will.
1: I feel bad about myself now listening to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that is, I mean, you know, because it it is like in in some ways, uh, you know, in, in the ways that I'm talking about are like uh, time. You know, that's the big mm-hmm. one. But you know, it's it's a very it's a one shot deal. You know, when are you ever going to have that kind of time again? To, like you say, go to the library and pick up a stack of books and spend all your time reading and engage with ideas and have those conversations. And, you know, so to to not take full advantage of it is um, a bummer. <laughs> but I guess there's also something to be said for the social aspects of university life. And, you know, it's also the only time in your life when you can probably be that debaucherous. You know, it's not like you can, you know, go off and do that all that easily as you get older. So.
2: Yeah, I had I had maybe like a, a one semester period where I went out on Friday nights, you know, and, and was social and you know, tried to try to meet girls or whatever. And then and then after a certain point, it wasn't like a conscious thing. It was just where I suddenly no longer felt like doing that. Like it was um like gravity was moving me uh toward this kind of other thing.
1: And that other thing was writing,
2: and yeah, exactly. And I was I was always writing, uh. Throughout throughout all of it, you know, I would I would uh, write a little bit in, in the early evening, and then and then go out. But then I learned that it's hard to write on the weekends when you're when you're hungover all day or or whatever, uh, or when you're always just kind of going out. You you lose you lose sense of kind of like the big mission and I, you know, I guess I was always kind of good at, at coming back to like the bigger picture.
1: Yeah. So what did your, what did your parents uh, think of your pursuits? Like, was this something they supported or were they telling you that you should probably be doing something more practical?
2: Well, I, w- I guess I was kind of lucky that my, both of my parents, neither of my parents were very successful and both of them were kind of disinterested uh, with, with, you know, my, kind of my, my big picture, my father definitely had a sense of writing as something kind of weak and frivolous, but he didn't have any better suggestions. Uh, And so we never exactly talked about that side of things. And my mother, she, she, um, was a little more, she was definitely more supportive as of writing as like a hobby. Um, but I remember, uh, even when I was in college, she was giving me like other career suggestions, um, other than, you know, uh, writing or, uh, teaching or, or, whatever it is that I was going to end up doing. Uh, but again, it was, um, neither of my parents like had strong careers or they didn't, neither of them had careers. Actually, they had, you know, like a series of jobs that almost paid the bills. So neither of them had, um, Enough life experience to kind of dissuade me with any, you know, like little persuasion.
1: I was going to say, when your mom started giving you career advice in college, when you were already like this focused, I'm assuming you were not taking that advice.
2: <laughs> no, it definitely upset me. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so then you get out of college, and what happens?
2: Well, I went str- I went straight into an MFA program. Uh, I um I met my I met my wife as an undergrad. And uh, we got, wait, 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 got engaged. Wait, wait,
1: wait, wait. How did you meet your wife? I thought you were, like, cloistered and, you know, reading Shakespeare. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I met her in class, and uh, she kind of um, knew me from, uh, you know, readings around campus or whatever. So it, it kind of, you know, I, I didn't meet her uh, socially. I definitely met her, um, you know, while I was doing these other things. And she was always very good at, at giving me space you know, giving me time, uh, for my writing.
1: And was she, is she a writer as well?
2: Uh, no, she's in publishing. Uh, she's in production.
1: Oh, okay. But it sounds like you guys had a similar, like, uh, interest in, you know, you had similar interest and maybe like a similar level of, um, seriousness when it came to the pursuit.
2: Um, she was definitely a much more serious student than I was. So, um, so I, I was very serious about writing, and then I had a sense of obligation to do well in my classes. Um, and she was very, very serious about, you know, maintaining a, a perfect grade point average, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we were both very focused and serious in our ways. Um, and then, in, I mean, we we went to the same grad program or we're, the same grad school.
1: Which is uh, which We which went to what? Emerson. Okay.
2: Uh, yeah, and I was in the. Um, the MFA program, and she was in the the publishing.
1: Okay. So you got into there, and then um, what were you working on during those years?
2: Um, You know, I I think overall I was kind of working on figuring out what... I was very focused on finding my voice and very focused on on it being a unique voice Uh, because I I had this sense that... I had to arrive at something that was different than what everyone else was doing. So I was, uh, I was still reading just about everything um, that I could get my hands on, everything that seemed kind of experimental. And then I was writing, um, uh, I took a lot of short story workshops and I took a lot of novel workshops and I took a novella workshop and just, uh, you know, try to write a lot of different kinds of stuff. I never really repeat myself uh and i didn't I didn't have a job all through graduate school, which my wife loved and uh you know, and i scroll like eight nine ten hours a day
1: wow and so and were you teaching any classes or anything as part of the deal
2: no no, no. um yeah, uh, we were definitely eating um you know, ramen noodles and, and that whole thing.
1: Sure. And then what, what about when you got out? Did you immediately start teaching afterwards, or did, did was, there, was there like a uh, a transitional period?
2: No, I started teaching right away. Yeah. Um, I thought it would just be for like one semester, and then, you know, I'd publish my uh, my thesis or something, and I'd make a million dollars, but...
1: <laughs> so many men before you and, and yeah. after you have had that same have had that same idea, you know?
2: Yeah, I thought it was original though.
1: <laughs> so you're uh so you're uh you've been teaching for how many years now since then?
2: Uh since two thousand six. So I, I guess this is my
1: this is my sixth or seventh year. Okay. And okay. do you do you find that there's anything uh, subst- you know substantial that you get from teaching that feeds your writing like you know like reading students' work and whatnot like is it is it something that you really feel nourishes you or is it just how you pay the bills and it 's kind of a grind to grade all those papers like is it you know uh,
2: I think i don 't really get anything like concrete out of their work, but I definitely get something out of um, just kind of dealing with people. Uh, you know, with a lot of people and having to communicate with a lot of people, and uh, you know, just a, a sense of how um, all these people with you know fairly diverse backgrounds and diverse interests um, look at the world. And you know, after spending like 20 years of my life essentially just kind of reading and and writing, uh, and not really having that kind of um, you know social social bent. Uh, it's been a good way of of picking up maybe how people are and how they interact, um, and what it is they think
1: about. Well, and I also think it's an energy issue, you know, because even if you're an introvert, which it sounds like you are, uh, you know, you can't be alone all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to right. go out, right. you have to go out and, and be exhausted by people in order to truly appreciate your introversion. Do you know what I'm saying? Like. Um, no, that's exactly true. Yeah, and I think you get because I, I, think I'm so you know I'm a little bit closer to the middle than maybe you are. Like I, I think like I have both tendencies to an extent. But you know, mm-hmm. I am a person who, like where I'm when I'm around lots of people and I'm being really social, I can really enjoy it. But uh, you know, I'm I, when I come home, I need to shut it down and like relax. Like I need the quiet time, you know. But um, I don't know. There's something to be gained from from having those kinds of interactions like just at the pure level of energy i don't think you can replicate it on your own you know human human beings are social creatures ultimately
2: yeah i think i need like my you know my 4 or 5 hours a day but then after that um it's over you know if i have to teach 4 hours a day and then go out uh you know i you know in my head i'm elsewhere There's only that, that four hours a day where I can be like, you know, immersed and completely engaged and, um, and engaging.
1: And so, and so when you're, and you're teaching in Boston, like in the city proper, correct? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, Uh, in Boston and Salem. Yeah.
1: Oh, Boston. And I was going to say, why are you out in Salem if you're, if you're an hour away?
2: Yeah, we, um, uh, you know, that was just where the, the jobs were when I, you know, when you first get out of grad school or whatever, you take whatever you can find. Um, so, so and, and I'm not a good one at, you know, looking elsewhere, so I just hold on to what I had.
1: Right, right. But what's the, what's the school? Like, what is the school in Salem? Is it U, uh, UMass? Salem, Salem State? State. Oh, Salem State.
2: No, Salem State. Yeah, they they tried to become a UMass, but it's just Salem State University.
1: Okay. And then what, where in Boston? Newbury College. Okay. Um, I like Boston. It's actually, I think it's a really cool city. You know, I've only been there once, but uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I thought it was great.
2: Yeah, it has a nice sense of history. It's a very beautiful
1: city. Yeah, it has a nice sense of history. And then I just, you just get, I like the energy. Uh, again, I like the energy of all like the different universities and the young people. And there's a lot of smart people. And um, and then, you know, Paul Revere's house. And I like I like American history, you know, and that, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and growing up in Wisconsin, you don't really have any history out there. I mean, it's like you you uh, you grow up reading about the things that happened out here, and so there was something about actually moving to a place where you know, like these these supposedly like great things that happened, these really transformative things. That um, you know, I, I think it's I think it's good to be around that kind of thing, and not just to be reading about. You know, these great things that happened uh, to other people and other places and, uh, you know, and so
1: on and so on. Yeah. And well, yeah, I mean, I think like we get it, like I live on the West Coast and there's some sense of that. But um, I think you really get it on the East Coast because it's just the only part of the country that's actually old enough to give you to, like, to, to deliver that kind of sense of history, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what is next for you? Like, what do you you know, what do you have in the works?
2: I'm working on a new novel. Um, I just I just finished up uh, I just finished up a novel, and so i have kind of seeing what happens with that one. And that one is kind of about uh, religious movements, uh, but it's based loosely off of um, uh, Mormonism and, and Joseph Smith. And this new one is, is about uh, witch trials and witch hunts. Uh, it was it was about a month into like the planning process that I, I realized that I live in Salem and I'm writing a novel about witches, which is about the you know the stupidest thing uh, <laughs> that I could do, but it seems really natural.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it had to happen. It's a it's a, you know it's a, it's an obvious choice.
2: Yeah, I mean it must have just kind of seeped in because I didn't even consciously realize, you know, there was like no no conscious of. Kind of inspiration from my surroundings. It was just it was this thing that happened that I wanted to write about. Um, I wanted to write about like the history of misogyny. Uh, You know, there's a lot of stuff in the news about uh, you know rape and women's rights and uh, that kind of thing. And and so I kind of directed my thoughts towards that, and, and it seemed very natural to write about witches.
1: Yeah, I mean that's an interesting aspect of the whole Salem witch trial too—is the you know the misogyny, the misogynistic mm-hmm. aspect. It just seems complicated to me because you know this whole thing about like these witches appeared in these girls' dreams, and it was just their word against theirs, and there had to have been more to it. Like there had to have been things that these ladies were doing, whether they were like you know crazy hippie women of their time, or they were the early feminists, or. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you think that, I mean, maybe that actually is true, and I just don't know the history well enough, but it seems like there must have been more meat on the bone there.
0: Well,
2: a lot of them were um, were uh, kind of older, outspoken women, and, uh, you know, it was just a very, they made themselves easy targets. People didn't like it when they, you know, stuck up for themselves or when they were, you know, they, they'd get angry and they would curse you you know a uh, a good way of finding yourself accused to be a witch which is to get angry at your neighbor and 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 tell them that you would get them and then uh for that person to have like their their child get sick or to have like uh you know their their fence fall apart or something like that and they would attribute uh those disasters to your curse. Um, so I think there's a lot of that but then uh there was it was a way of um um kind of getting at your property because they would, uh, if you were convicted of being a witch, the the town could could take your property. So there was a lot of kind of that where people were just rivals and and used, um, accusations to kind of, uh, take over someone's farm or something (laughs) like that.
1: I want your real estate. So I'm going to have you burned at the stake, essentially. Is that?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Well, on that note, um, I will. Uh, I'm going to have to end things, but it's been great talking with you. And congratulations on the book. And it sounds like you've got a lot of other stuff in the uh, in the works. So I wish you the best with that as well.
2: All right, thank you, and thanks for talking to me.
1: All right, everybody, there you go. That is it. That's the show. That's Robert Kloss. Go get his new novel. It's called The Alligators of Abraham. It is available now from Mud Luscious Press. You can find Robert online at robert-closs.com. He's on the Facebook, and you can follow him on the Twitter at Robert Kloss. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, I've just written another, another kid poem, or the beginning of another kid poem. I scribbled it down. It came to me in a burst of inspiration. This one is called Frozen, the first two stanzas of which go like this. I'm frozen in place. I'm frozen in place. I'm unable to move from this particular space. My feet are like lead, and I can't feel my face, and the mind in my head is unable to race. There it is. That's it. (laughs) Uh, I'm dropping logic. I just dropped logic. Please remember that Kafka was a vegetarian and that Christina Rossetti died while praying. Thank you for listening. Thank you for getting the app, the official Other People app. Thank you for rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Thank you for tweeting about the program. Thanks for getting a tattoo of the show's logo on the small of your back, the official Other People tramp stamp. I appreciate it. I will be back again soon in just a few days with another writer. And we are going to talk for your amusement. It's going to happen. It's going to be very, very enjoyable. I hope that you will join us. And I thank you for your time and consideration.